Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we are positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join certified dog trainers as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. My name is Kayla Fratt, and I'm the owner of Journey Dog Training, an online dog training business. I'm joined today by Janae Moore, owner of Boise Dog Sports in Boise, Idaho. Janae is a certified professional dog trainer, knowledge assessed, a certified canine good citizen and trick dog evaluator, and a certified class evaluator. And today we are talking about crossover training. So hi, Janae. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, before we get started, can you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners, tell them a bit about you and where they can find you online? Yeah, uh, so my name is Janae. I've been training dogs for about eight years now. Um, I do a lot of private practice work. I see clients do a lot of behavior work, particularly with reactivity and aggression towards dogs and people. Um, they can find me online. So my website is boisedogsports.com. They can also find me on Facebook under Boise Dog Sports as well. Um, and then I'm also the Inmate Dog Alliance Project of Idaho program trainer here. So I go out to the um, local prisons where the Humane Society sends dogs for training um, in kind of behavior modification, and they stay there for about 10 weeks. Um, so I do that program here as well. Yeah, and that's super cool. We should, um, at some point, we might even just have to have you back on to talk about that program because it's uh, oh, yeah, really exciting and you're working on some really cool stuff with it. Um, but today, Janae and I are talking about crossover training. So a so-called crossover trainer is basically someone who started their career, their dog training career, using all of the different dog training tools available to them, but now relies much more heavily on positive reinforcement and environmental management rather than punishment. Um, is, that, is that kind of how you would describe a crossover trainer as well? Yeah, yeah, definitely, for sure. So can you go ahead and introduce us a little bit to kind of your experience um, through this, uh, through being a crossover trainer and as well as kind of through um, your experiences with kind of both aspects of the community, both um, before, during, and after um, all, of, all of this. And I think we're all kind of always in the process of improving our training techniques. So it's not like you're ever a finished product, but for the sake of uh, clarity, we'll call it before, during, and after. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So um, I got started in training. I had a really reactive dog. Um, I adopted her. She was kind of my first real dog. Um, and she was just reactive towards people. She was reactive towards other dogs. Um, she came with a little bit of a bite history um, and then ended up biting several members of the family and my friends. Um, and oh, I just no. wasn't sure how to, how to deal with it at all. Um, and I got started with a trainer who swore up and down he could fix her problems for me. Um, and he was uh, more of a traditional based trainer. So he used prong collars, he used e-collars, um, he used choke chains and used them pretty heavily um, and was very corrections based in his training. And initially it seemed to work. Um, you know, it suppressed my dog's behavior. I was like, fantastic. My dog's looking better on the outside. Um, and then ultimately um, I, you know, we, we, I went through a class with him and um, fell in love with dog training and was like, fantastic. I, this is what I want to do. Um, uh -huh. and so I, it was one of those things where I, I started with him and if I'm completely honest, I was happy. I didn't really feel yeah. I was doing anything wrong. The dogs were responding. The behavior looked like what I wanted it to look like. Um, it wasn't until I got my second dog who is very much on the sensitive side and the methods that I was applying, uh, used to applying just weren't working for her. She would shut down. Um, you know, she would kind of, you'd look at her straight and she'd pee and then go run and hide in the oh, closet. No. And so introducing corrections to her was not something that worked well for her. Um, and so I, ultimately ended up taking a different class with her. I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go work with a different trainer, learn some new techniques. And that's where I was introduced to positive reinforcement training. And I hated it at first. I had to tell everybody it was the hardest transition for me because we went from, we went from using techniques that I don't want to say it delivered instant long lasting results, but you saw if you correct a dog and they just kind of, really out of fear of not wanting to, uh, out of fear of wanting to avoid that punishment, 
they comply with what you're asking them to do, it's very reinforcing as a human that pop on the leash and my dog is is listening to me and it's great. Um, And it, it took me a long time to come to terms with the idea of positive reinforcement training, which is a little bit more about building a relationship with your dog, developing cooperation with your dog, learning how to read your dog and pay attention. There's a lot more work involved in positive reinforcement training. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit more about just kind of training your dog from the inside out and laying that foundation. And then the results come as a, kind of as a product of building that foundation versus just relying on waiting for your dog to fail and then, you know, telling it that it shouldn't do that. Um, and I think that that's the biggest for me, learning to kind of manage my expectations and have patience through the process was the biggest challenge. And I find that in my clients as well. A lot of the times my clients will come to me and they'll have their dogs on prong collars or e-collars. Um, and they're used to correcting behavior, but they're not used to looking at what their dog is saying, what their dog's body is telling them, how their dog feels, what they're, what they really want to be teaching their dog. They're mostly just kind of, they're not always used to setting their dog up for success in the beginning. Um, and I think some of the challenges is there's just, it's a totally different mindset, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what I'm most interested in um, getting into is the, the mindset set shift. Cause I think the original idea that I had when I decided that I really wanted to do this episode um, was I heard somewhere, I'm not even going to be able to remember who exactly said this. Um, basically someone saying what you had said, where it's not when you're working on crossing over and you're working on becoming as positive reinforcement as you can be in your training. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not just throwing your prong collar in the trash and never looking back. It's not just, you know, kicking your e-collar out the door. It's, a lot about how you have to really change your mindset and full disclosure i've never really trained with those tools i when i first started out as a dog walker i walked a bunch of dogs on prong collars um even a couple with e-collars i grew up in a hunting community where it's just like every single dog has an e-collar um that's what we're told we have to do right Um, and i just remember really vividly um i was a very new dog walker i was brand new into just starting to learn a little bit about training and um I was walking the dog was pulling really bad and she pulled kind of into the street and I yanked back on the collar because there was a car coming and I just this dog peed herself and screamed and like it wasn't even intended to be a correction but I was just like holy cow we need to get this dog on like I can't walk a dog on this and like risk that I'm going to do something impulsive that causes that dog that much pain. So like, I, I haven't had this experience, I guess is what I'm saying. And I'm really interested in it because I know a lot of people are. And I think, um, these are, this is not my original idea. I think Ken Ramirez talked about this quite a bit on the animal training Academy podcast where there's actually, I think there's an empathetic benefit to having started out as a more balanced or traditional trainer. And then, crossed over um, Mm -hmm. because it helps you understand more where people are. And I think people like me who have always been in this positive reinforcement community can struggle with empathizing with where people are coming from when they feel like they need to use these tools or they don't realize that there are other ways or they don't really care because they're getting results. Um, So I'm really, really excited to be talking to you about this. Um, So let's circle back to kind of that mindset shift a little bit. Um, I know you kind of said with, um, with Jack um, that you were originally having a hard time in class, not understanding why you weren't forcing her to do stuff. Do you mm-hmm. want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. So, so we, when I took a class with her, um, she's, she's just a very sensitive dog. I would say she's probably the, one of the most sensitive dogs that I have not so much anymore, but when I first got her, probably one of the softest dogs that I've still today that I've ever met. Um, Mm -hmm. and when we went to, and she has a heart, she had a hard time being around other dogs and people, um, wouldn't take food, had no interest in toys, still has very little interest in toys. Um, not even responsive. Like I said, not even responsive to the corrections factor. So there was really no, I felt there weren't really many tools that either of the kind of uh, trainers that I looked up to and admired and respected at the time could provide me with for her because she just wasn't responding to any of it. And so when we were in class, the positive reinforcement instructor tells me, 
just sit with her. You're going to sit with her. Um, you know, you can comfort her. You can give her a little doggy massage, but just sit and let her take it all in, put out her mat, let her hang out on her mat. She can have a Kong if she wants her Kong. If she doesn't, no big deal. Um, well, she didn't take her Kong, but she just kind of sat there. And that's what we did for the first three classes is we just wow. sat there and let her observe. And it was really hard to go from the structure of the previous class where it didn't matter if the dog was scared because the idea was, well, you drag the dog over, make it face what it's scared of. And if it faces it and nothing bad happens and it gets a pat on the head, it sees that it's fine. Um, and so for me, it was really hard to just kind of figure out why I spent money to go sit and watch other people train their dogs dogs <laughs> while my dog did nothing when I could force my dog with her leash and just physically manipulate her into the positions. Um, and I just, it took me a while. It, it took longer than those three weeks. On, on the fourth week, she started actually taking treats um, and we were able to start doing some work, but I was very resentful. I would say of those three weeks, because honestly, it was probably ego it was, okay, here I am sitting, here I am with at least some background knowledge. So maybe it's in a totally different style of training, but I'd been working under the other trainer for a while at that point. And so it was kind of one of those situations where it was like, I don't know. I think a part of me felt like I was better than just having a dog who just needed to sit there and do nothing. Um, and it was, it was about me and not about my dog and what my dog needed. And I think that that's just, that's probably the biggest shift is that when you're working or when you kind of come at training from a traditional perspective, and I, I know this depends on the trainer, but from my, from my experience and then, you know, the many of the people that I've met, there's a very big mindset that a dog is a dog and therefore it's lesser in a way it's still appreciated and respected but it's it's we're the superior being so therefore what we say goes and the dog needs yeah. to listen no matter what that means um and it was very difficult to go from having that ingrained to then go to okay well the dog is still a respected individual but it's actually allowed to have its own thoughts and feelings and perspective on the world and it's okay to not make it do something because the dog wants, and it's not going to make that dog want to take over the world. It doesn't mean that dog is dominating you. Um, but that's a huge mindset, especially because I feel like this idea that we need to be alpha is so ingrained in our society um, and perpetuated also just in the media, um, you know, little mm -hmm. things shared around Facebook, um, popular trainers, um, you know, I mean, it's just, it's this idea that I think we have the wrong idea about what it means to be a leader. And we start thinking that it means, okay, you listen to what I say when I say it, no matter what that means for you versus being a leader essentially is, you know, there's a mutual respect there. I can lead you and tell you what I want you to do, but I can meet you in the middle and make sure that your emotional needs are met first. Yeah, um, so I would say that's properly and all that good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, so what are other, you just said, you know, kind of work, reworking around kind of that dominance alpha framework was really tough. What are some of the other kind of lessons or things that you felt like you had to unlearn um, as you were moving forward with Jack and with your clients and all of the other dogs? Oh, man. Um, I think I had to unlearn or relearn. I mean, I think that the, the idea of, I guess, suppressing behavior was one just that suppressed behavior doesn't necessarily mean the behavior is fixed. Um, so I think, I mean, honestly, I have seen a lot of dogs, um, from other companies where they've been really either poorly corrected or really harshly corrected for things like lunging or barking or growling at other dogs. And there's been a lot of fallout from that. So people noted that they went in, they initially saw improvement and then, you know, six months later, their dog's aggression came back and now it's 10 times worse than what it was. Um, sometimes, and, and sometimes they see it pretty instantly. I have had people who have said, okay, well, we only shocked him once, but now he's worse. And I regret that. Um, and so I have to say that personally, I did not see that with any, uh, with, with my dogs. Um, but what I did see is that 
the suppression of their negative behaviors worked only when I had the leash. So if they knew that I was going to correct a certain behavior, they were kind of, I mean, for lack of a better word, and if we're being honest, they were shut down. Um, and they didn't act out when I held the leash, but everyone else who tried to handle my dog had a problem. And oftentimes then the problem was worse for that person. Um, and I think that I had to unlearn this idea that just because I was holding the leash and my dog wasn't demonstrating the behavior in the moment, it doesn't mean I fixed it. It just means that it's the, the, it just meant that unfortunately my threat of punishment was so much stronger than their desire to carry out the behavior that they were too scared to respond. And it took me a little while to learn, to learn that suppression didn't, was not, it was just suppressive suppression. Yeah. Uh, it took me a while to learn, okay, just because it's not there right now, doesn't mean it's, it's not there. Um, so I would say that's another thing that I had to kind of relearn is that working with the underlying behaviors takes time and the change in the outside behavior usually comes as a result of the inside work that you're doing versus the other way around. Like in traditional training, it's all about shutting down that outside behavior first and then hopefully building an appropriate foundation. But um, Mm -hmm. it doesn't always follow that. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's a little bit backwards. And to be totally fair, I do know there are plenty of times where, um, you know, what you said about handing a leash to someone else and all those problem behaviors come back. That can still happen <laughs> with That's positive reinforcement training too. Um, but I, there's a difference between, um, so I have one, one client, the first dog that I ever really trained, um, I was hired as her midday dog walker, um, and really just started training her because it was so fun. Um, and this dog and I got this beautiful off-leash heel. And this dog never pulled with me. And it was honestly probably the best leash training I've ever done in my life. Because um, <laughs> I watched this dog for an hour every single day. That was what I was right. paid to. So the training was all just kind of extra. Um, and this dog pulled her owner over. Um, you know, at the same time, and this is, you know, that's partially, you know, maybe the downside of day training or board and train sort of set up as well. Um, right. But this owner would text me and just say, like, how do I get Mabel to do for me what she does for you? And I'd say, you got to bring treats on walks. <laughs> You've got to show her um, that you're willing to pay for it. Um, and uh, yeah, Mabel had gotten savvy, but I, I think that we probably would agree that I'd rather have a dog who is a little bit savvy about who doesn't have the treats right. and um, is acting out because they know that they're not going to get paid rather than acting out, which I don't even like the phrase acting out that I just used, but they're, they're behaving in a way that we describe as inappropriate. Right. Um, not because we're not going to pay them. Cause that's kind of, you know, okay. That's, that's okay with me. That's not awful. Um, versus doing something we don't like because we know that they know that we're not going to follow up with uh, some sort of correction that is scary or upsetting to them. Uh, so just to be fair to everyone, <laughs> that it's, uh, it, um, that particular problem could be, uh, can kind of show up no matter what methods you're using. So, um, when we first started talking about this episode, you said that it can take a lot to break away from punishment and tool use and training. And it's not just as simple as throwing at the prong car and wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, you're done. <laughs> um, what else needs to change? Um, how... Yeah, yeah, it's because it's not just about getting rid of the tool. It's not just about um, saying that you're not going to raise your voice. That that just takes tools out of your toolbox, and that's going to make you feel inadequate and frustrated. And if you are successful with, tra- with punishment or corrections in training in particular, you're going to see problems coming up if you do that, right? Right, right. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and I think it, it comes, I mean, it comes back to the the sense that it's just, I mean, they're opposite. And I I guess, you know, I kind of speak more maybe for, you know, uh, in terms of, I guess, kind of my experience, I have to say that the, the first trainer that I kind of apprenticed under was definitely, I would say he was very corrections and compulsion based. Like I wouldn't even consider him a balanced trainer in the sense Mm -hmm. that he used very little reward system, um, other than praise. Um, and so I, you know, coming from, from that world. And then the pot, I mean, they really are opposites. And I think that that's, um, when people come from that kind of trainer, that is a little bit more compulsion based and doesn't 
tend to use rewards as often other than a pat on the head. I think it's it's a challenge for people and, and myself included to start learning how to use rewards because when you apply the use of rewards is very different than when you might apply the use of a correction. So when you're focused on applying that next correction, you're kind of waiting for your dog to fail. You're waiting for your dog to kind of act out. I mean, I think I know um, and act out in a way that you don't like so that you can tell your dog that that's not what you want. And maybe they get a pat on the head when they're walking in heel, for example, but then they start to pull because they see a squirrel there, have their prong collar on, they get a pop on the collar um, and they come back to heel. And so you start kind of anticipating those moments when the dog is kind of acting inappropriately and you're focused on that when you're just waiting to give a correction versus when you're focused on rewards-based training or kind of paying your dog for, yes, this is the job I want you to do. Here's your paycheck. Um, essentially you're, you're having to focus on an entirely different skill set in your dog. Um, instead of waiting for your dog to pull for that squirrel and correcting it when he does, you have to kind of pay attention to your environment and notice that there's a squirrel, know your dog's probably going to want to go for that squirrel and kind of start anticipating the moment before your dog breaks for that squirrel. So you can catch your dog before they even engage in the inappropriate behavior. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it takes a little bit more it takes a little bit more skill that you have to learn at reading your dog and knowing, okay, when are, this goes for whether you're teaching leash walking, whether you're teaching a stay, whether even a sit, you have to start learning to watch your dog and pay attention to when they're either going to break uh, and, and kind of veer away from performing a behavior or when they're going to, when they're committed to performing a behavior. So also knowing the time as your dog is going into a sit or into a down, what's the point that you might, you know, use a yes and then treat your dog um, mm -hmm. versus without and knowing when you can say that and catch them in that moment. Um, and they're not just going to stop halfway and then spring at you for the treat. Um, so it's a little bit like, it's just a little bit more, I think, learning how to read your dog's body language a little bit better. And I think it's just, and, and also you have to have clear expectations of what it is you want. You have to be able to picture in your head, okay, do I care if I have my dog's shoulder at my knee and heel, or do I want just a nice loose leash walk and what, and where my dog's maybe out in front of me, but that leash is still slack. And how am I going to consistently reinforce this? And so I think that that's a, um, that's one thing that can make it a little bit challenging because you're paying attention to a completely different set of signals um, versus when you're just kind of focused on correcting your dog. The other thing that I think makes it a little bit challenging is that I feel, or I have found that a lot of people have found safety and security in their prong collars, um, or their e-collars. Um, you know, I, I have heard people describe e-collars as kind of like the seatbelt to a car. So it's not so much that my dog needs the e-collar, but it's like putting your seatbelt on in your car. You know, it's there in case everything else fails or we have an emergency situation. Um, and I find that people rely, feel kind of rely on those tools a little bit. Um, you know, they don't feel they can walk their dog safely without the prong or they've tried to walk their dog on the flat collar and the dog just pulls. And so the prong is the only thing that's worked up until the point they got a trainer in. Um, and so they yeah. kind of have these reliance on these tools that make them feel in control. Um, and a lot of yeah. times it's just because they haven't done this style of training and just need someone to teach them how. And once they have the tools and they've learned how, then they're able to come off the prong collar or off the e-collar and put it away and say, okay, I don't need that anymore. But it's a safety thing for a lot of my clients. Totally. No, and I know, I mean, it's such a pervasive sentiment, especially in off-leash sort of stuff with e-collars. Mm -hmm. um, I don't get asked this all that often, but I know friends who do, who live in different parts of the country where they get asked a lot, like, but don't you feel unsafe walking your dog without an e-call, you know, hiking your mm -hmm. dog without mm -hmm. an e-call? Um, and uh, I was actually just talking to another trainer about this, and she um, she just had a dog die that um, mm -hmm. was facing something and ran through the highest level of shock on an e-collar and ran off a cliff. Oh, and I feel like there's something really, uh, you know, even aside from the like 
whether or not I feel that we should be shocking our dogs. Um, there's kind of a false sense of security and it's particularly the e-collars because I think people think of it as a seatbelt, as we just said, but it's not a physical barrier. Right, <laughs> that right. can run through them all the time. Um, and yes, they might stop your dog a lot of the time, but um, also, I mean, sometimes the dog might run away from the e-collar. Mm -hmm. I had a client who came to me who wanted to do some boundary training. So she had a, a really nice cabin up in Breckenridge. Um, and was not allowed to put a fence up and had this new dog and she had done a little bit with the e-collar and the dog had bolted into the highway when she mm -hmm. had tried to use the e-collar for a boundary and you know it's just it, it's risky and I think there's um it's almost it's ironic and sad to me that it's thought of as a safety tool um because sometimes it can be but it also can totally backfire and if it gives you a false sense of security um yeah, that's upsetting to me. Um, so uh, one of the things that you kind of said that I wanted to circle back to is you talked a little bit about, you know, this guy that you were originally learning from was pretty traditionally based. I think to be fair to many of, I have some friends who are really skilled balance trainers. A lot of them do use a lot of positive reinforcement. Um, but I, one of the things I've noticed when I've watched, um, watched people who are more traditional or even on the balance side is, it seems like there's a little bit more stinginess in rewards and less variety in reward choice. Would you agree with that? And if so, do you want to chime in on that? Yeah, sure. Um, honestly, I think it's so dependent on, on the trainer. I have to say there are some, um, I, yes and no. So I have certainly noticed, I think it depends where they fall. So I feel like balanced is, it's such an all-encompassing word and it's so non-specific and i have had you know i've met balanced trainers who are super close to the positive reinforcements or i guess you know um i say that but i feel like i've I, there's been some kind of resentment separating balanced and positive reinforcement and i don't want to imply that balanced trainers don't use rewards-based methods so i'll say i have met Balanced trainers who are very close to the force-free spectrum, who very who use corrections but use them very minimally. And then I yeah. have met people who call themselves balanced trainers because they occasionally give the dog a hot dog, and most of the time they're using corrections. Um, I would say a lot of the trainers that I have met um, use a combination and maybe more reward in the beginning, but I feel that the reward system gets weaned off very quickly. And it's, it, it almost takes this kind of turn where let's say you go three, four or five weeks with a rewards based system. And then, uh, the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth week. Now it's, it's turning to corrections and proofing, so to speak. Gotcha. Um, and I feel like I, the, from the balance trainers, at least in this area, um, that I have observed. Um, and to be honest, I, that's not many. Um, this, it's a very, I feel like, um, <laughs> at least currently we're in, in Boise, it's very divided between traditional based sure. trainers and positive reinforcement force-free trainers. Um, but I, I have met, honestly, I've met trainers all along the spectrum. Um, but I would say that I, I feel like the, maybe the reward system, if not stingy just gets weaned off a little bit faster with many yeah. of the balanced trainers that I have met. Um, yeah. No, I think that's a good point. Cause I think if we really wanted to get super technical about it, like I, I both of us probably could technically be classified as balanced trainers. Right. Um, and I know, I know there's, I, I'm a member of the IABC and I know there's several people there who are very, very um, humane hierarchy focused, but have said, you know what? Yeah. I have used an e-collar in this one situation for this one dog with super serious prey drive or, you know, whatever it was. Um, and yeah, so it, it, it's, a, it's a crappy term, just like positive reinforcement based trainer is a crappy term because, right. you know, that's not like literally the only thing that I do. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess kind of what I was getting at. And, and again, this probably isn't fair to the whole spectrum of balance trainers, but one of the things I feel like I've noticed is um, more, reliance on the idea of praise or petting being mm. a good enough reward um especially for behaviors that i would consider kind of expensive that i would say uh, should be getting paid with something higher value mm -hmm. and there's definitely our dogs who love praise and dogs who love um petting 
But um, that's one of the things that I feel like I've noticed. And uh, I think sometimes that comes from kind of the fear of the dog gaining weight or the mm-hmm. fear of bribery. Um, and mm-hmm. they, they want it to come from that relationship with you, which is really nice. Um, and I, I appreciate that. Um, but I think it takes a lot to be able to train a dog successfully using, if, if your only positive reinforcement things that you're willing to reach for are going to be praise and petting, um, I think that hinders you. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, 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 this has been on my mind. I was recently watching someone train and, um, you know, they were calling the dog off of a squirrel mm. and then they were giving the dog a pat on the rump and praising her and praising really heavily. It was excellent praise. Yeah. But I was just like, I don't know, man, <laughs> like that's a really hard behavior. Um, and we're also hiking this dog. Like if this dog gets a couple pieces of hot dog, this dog's not going to turn into a hippopotamus. Right, right, right. And, and and yeah, I think there's there is often a fear of the dog gaining weight or feeling like you're bribing them, which can limit choices and uh, uh, liberalness. Lib- that's not the right word. <laughs> uh, freedom of you know how many treats you're willing to give or how often right. you're willing to give treats. Right. Um, and again, it varies so much. Let's go back to kind of your journey. <laughs> what are some of the things that you struggled with most when you were making this transition? Patience. Um, yeah. You know, with myself too, I, I can, I'm generally a fairly patient person generally. <laughs> um, yeah. But I will say it was difficult being, going from feeling competent at one style of training to feeling like a complete idiot in another style of training and just mm-hmm. having it. And there is very little, there was very little application of the style of training. I had originally learned the style of training that I have now come to know and love, um, and use yeah. as a primary, um, form of it, but I, it was hard being patient with myself through that transition, um, hard kind of letting go of my ego and realizing it's not about me. And it's my dog performing a behavior. The instant I ask it to perform that behavior does not reflect on my ability or skill as a handler. What reflects on my ability and skill as a handler and trainer is my ability to understand where my dog is at and set them up for success. Whether success looks like 10 feet from a dog, for example, that it's reacting to or 30 feet. Um, and understanding that I'm going to get to where I want eventually and in my dog's time. Um, but I will say that it took some time to kind of dissolve the ego factor. And I mean, we all, I feel like all get our ego gets in the way at various points, but it was definitely a blow to the ego, um, in the beginning. And I also think it was just learning how to manage expectations and break things down. So instead of having to look at a stay as I put you in a sit, I tell you to stay and I walk 30 feet away I had to learn, okay, what are the steps to building this stay? Okay, the first thing is making sure you understand not just how to sit, but how to hold a sit. And the next step is making sure that you can hold that sit, even if there are some distractions going on, other dogs, people, toys. And then the next step, okay, are you able to let me walk away even a foot and then come back to you? Um, And I think that learning how to manage my expectations and break things down was another of the, I think those were the big three challenges to crossing over. Um, and then once I had kind of resolved those, then it was pretty easy. Um, and, and then I learned to enjoy it and just kind of relax and have fun with it. Totally. Yeah. I honestly have a hard time imagining how frustrating it must be to feel competent as a trainer and then be handed a whole new book, so to speak. Yes. And and realizing that everything, you know, um, or a lot of what you know isn't actually useful. It kind of feels like, I don't know if you had this experience when you were in college, but I had a couple of college classes where I walked in being like, yeah, I'm good at chemistry. Like I tutored people in high school. And then, you know, they opened the first lecture and I'm just like, oh God, um, my high school didn't cover that. <laughs> yes. You know, um, I mean, that's the closest analogy I have, but I, I'm just empathizing with you because that sounds really tough. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think uh, I, you know another. Ken, I just re-listened to a podcast with Ken Ramirez on it, so I'm just full of Ken Ramirez quotes right now. But one of the things he talked about that I think is important to remember um, 
is the idea that when you're changing techniques or adding a new drill or anything, it doesn't even have to be switching from a correction to um, a treat. It, your performance as a handler is going to drop because if you're really skilled at, you know, fixing aggression or suppressing aggression, one might argue with an e-caller, um, inevitably it's going to be really tough for you to switch to something, a different method, even if um, right. that other method is ultimately better for the dog and actually gets better long lasting results. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just, you're, you're better at the other one. So let's pivot to talking a little bit about clients because for um, any of the trainers listening, um, you know, if you are a professional trainer, you probably only cross over once. Um, and I will say like, I do feel like I kind of went from like not knowing anything about dog training to being super hardcore positive reinforcement, super duper force free, um, like kind of militant about it, um, to as I've worked with more dogs and more people and like, I've gotten a lot better at like moderating my approach and, um, you know, being like, you know what, if you really want to have your dog wearing an e-collar when you're in the field, I'm not going to say you're a terrible person. I'm going to say, you know, keep in mind that your dog's not run through that. Um, but honestly, if they're not asking, I'm not going to say anything. So I, I, I haven't crossed over twice, but I, you know, you're always modulating and changing and learning. Right. Um, but as a professional trainer, you probably are going to help or watch a lot of other people and a lot of other clients kind of crossing over. And we don't really call it that when we're talking about our clients. Um, but I know I personally, um, when I lived in Denver and I was working with in-person clients, I would say 80% of my clients had already seen another trainer first and usually a trainer who used more, um, more of a balanced approach, more different corrective tools and whatever. Um, so I would say almost 80% of my clients at some point had seen another trainer with different training techniques and that's kind of why they came to me. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I would imagine you've had some a somewhat similar experience. And how how do you work with that? And I know you also had to do this at the prison system as well. So yes, yes. Um. So so yeah. So um, I do have a lot of clients who come over or, or who come to me having done other types of training, um, and they generally are pretty open. I mean, I feel like my a lot of times. They work with a lot of behavior cases, um, a lot of dogs who are either reactive towards other dogs on walks, dogs who are kind of having um, aggression issues with other dogs inside the house, and then dogs who are showing aggression towards people. So those are kind of the three primary categories that I work with. And a lot of the time, those people tried other trainers who put a dog in the prong, a prong or an e-collar first. Um, and either they feel that the behavior got worse or they feel that those tools stopped helping them manage the behavior or they just didn't feel comfortable or have a good understanding of how to use those tools. Um, or they just kind of plateaued. So they've kind of, they, they made some progress and then just everything just kind of flatlined um, and things were, are okay managing management wise, but not, uh, they're not progressing as much as they want to progress. So those are kind of the four reasons that people have come over to me from other trainers. Um, and a lot of the time, my initial, so I, I do have um, other people in the community who are a little bit more militant about tool use. Um, I have to say, I feel I'm fairly flexible compared to some of my colleagues um, in the sense that I don't have a contractual obligation that people can't use those tools while they're working with me. I talk to them about their tools, um, but I really like to kind of focus on why they're using the tools in the first place. What makes you feel that you can't walk this dog without the prong collar and let's address that. And if that means that we spend our first two or three sessions working together with one leash attached to the prong and another leash attached to your flat collar while we work on transitioning it so that your dog can walk nicely on the flat collar too, that's fine. Um, and so I think a lot of the times, you know, people are also afraid of, I have to say, one of the things that I feel we could be better at as professionals is not alienating our clients who have used tools because that's what they've been told by another professional to use. So I think if I go to a doctor and the, and I, you know, for a good example, I had I had my first dog bite ever, went to the doctor, doctor gave me some antibiotics and a tetanus shot. Um, I had someone ask me, well, chances of getting tetanus from a dog bite, probably not very high. Why did you get the tetanus shot? 
I got the tetanus shot because my doctor recommended it. And the doctor said, you need to, this is something that I strongly recommend you should. I'm going to trust the doctor because he's the doctor. So I feel that a lot of the time my clients have come over. It's not that they put this prong on because they are gung ho about the tool. They had a professional who they paid trusted, who generally delivered okay results said, this is the right tool for your dog. And they trusted that. And there's nothing wrong with, with that. That's in any kind of client professional service-based relationship, we have that general trust, um, or we try to. Um, and so I feel that as a positive kind of a positive reinforcement based community, we could be a lot better about understanding where our clients are coming from and not immediately going into, well, can you think about how this tool might've made this behavior worse? Can you think about, you know, can you see the connections here? You just have to do it gently, um, you know, and, and, and give them alternative tools. And my approach to it is more, instead of saying, we're not going to use this tool, we're going to use this one instead. It's, well, here's what I do. Let me show you what I do. And eventually they have enough success with that, that they just organically stop using the prong or they stop using the e-collar. Um, and so that's how I've done it with, with my clients, um, with the, the dog program in the prison, it was a little bit, a little bit more challenging, um, just because I was working with people who had used these heavy correction based methods for years, um, and years and years and years and been told for those years and years and years that that was the correct way to train dogs and really the only way to train dogs. Um, so it's a little bit harder when you have someone who firmly believes that correction is the way to go versus when you have what is kind of my average client base, which is they just want the problem fixed. They don't care how. Uh-huh. Right. Yes. Yeah. They're not interested in becoming dog trainers. Generally. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the things uh, kind of piggybacking on what you said about kind of our positive reinforcement community being more understanding of it is actually sitting down and having a hard look at yourself and saying, Mm -hmm. is this dog or having a hard talk with yourself, I guess, is this dog that I'm so upset about that I'm seeing like, you know, walking past a dog with a prong on and you're just getting like upset and emotional about it. Like, is that dog's welfare actually being compromised? Like, why are you letting this ruin your day? Why are you letting this make you think that this person is evil? Um, you know, like, if I see a dog out off-leash hiking with an e-collar, in general, my response is, awesome, they're hiking their dog. Mm-hmm. I hope that the e-collar isn't the only training that they're doing for all the reasons that we've already talked about. Um, but I think... You know, and this is a new thing for me that I've started really um, trying to consciously do for myself after um, listening to, I think Sarah Strumming talks about this on, a lot on her podcast, um, because I am someone who until pretty recently would see a tool and have a visceral reaction. Um, mm-hmm. And now, you know, I actually do sit down and, you know, talk to myself about it a little bit and say, like, is this dog's welfare actually being compromised or is this tool actually giving the dog some more freedom in an aspect where I can actually say, you know what? this is probably a net positive for this dog because the reality is most dogs aren't like your dog Jack where using those tools would actually seriously compromise their welfare just period. Um, Because if most dogs were like Jack, I don't think these tools would still be so prevalent. So there is um, kind of, I I mean, in my opinion, an unfortunate reality that most dogs can take corrections and most Mm -hmm. dogs do. that doesn't mean that you need them and that doesn't mean that certain dogs need a firmer hand or that you need an e-collar to fix aggression, but um, we can get away with this sort of stuff with most dogs. And um, before you get your panties in a bunch, maybe remind yourself of that, that there are worse things in the world than having a dog wear a shock collar where he hasn't gotten actually shocked in years. (laughs) Right. Um, Right. Yeah. So let's, let's actually end on the last note of aggression, because I know both of us work aggression cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is a really common myth that I see is that a certain aggressive behaviors or certain breeds, you know, I mean, I'm thinking the shepherds, um, the Malinois, you know, the idea that you can't train that dog without some pretty intense corrections in many cases. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to chime in on that? I, I honestly, I've been working remotely for so long that um, I don't have any recent experience to say about this in person. I do have plenty of shelter talk, stuff to talk about. But. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, the 
it, it kind of goes back a little bit to what we were talking about, about correcting kind of undesirable behavior versus, um, you know, looking for opportunities to reinforce and understanding kind of where thresholds are and how to break behaviors down. I think the biggest, I think one of the biggest things that I see, um, whether it's a discussion in amongst trainers of different styles in person that I've been part of, or if it's even on, you know, Facebook groups where these things tend to be rampant. Um, I think the biggest thing I see is that a lot of time people will look at a dog who's maybe, let's say in the earlier stages of training and you're using treats or, um, yeah, treats or toy reward to work on, um, counter conditioning. And a lot of times people will be like, okay, well, you can't stay 50 feet from a dog forever. Um, and I know that just from my experience with a lot of my clients, it tends to be one of those things where we take baby steps, baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. Is this even working? Holy crap. I have a different dog. Like there's never that moment in training where people are saying, man, my dog is a totally different dog between this week and last week. Um, I work, I would say reactivity. I work on average in kind of eight week program, mm -hmm. so to speak, um, to kind of, and it's not until around week five or six for most dogs that people start looking at it and saying, wow, we're actually, you know, we were actually able to take a walk through the neighborhood or take a walk in a park and have, you know, we only had one incident of reactivity as opposed to 20 incidents of reactivity. Um, and I think that that's one of the, um, big differences is that you don't see instantaneous results when you're working under threshold and gradually pushing that dog closer and closer and closer versus if you're using punishment and a dog acts out and you give it a really harsh correction, um, maybe for the rest of that session, that correction sinks into that dog's brain and the dog isn't acting out. It's not lunging. It's not growling. It's not barking. It may still be stressed. It's still, you know, panting, hyperventilating, you know, looking everywhere, mm -hmm. but you you and the other dog, um, it may be, you know, maybe vocalizing a little bit, but it, generally it looks different than that kind of lunging barking dog that is what the client wants to correct. Um, and it looks that way faster and it's, yeah. you can, I feel like sometimes it's pushed a little bit harder. Um, in the, the, with the first trainer that I apprenticed under one of his exercises would be to set up an, one of those little agility tables. He'd put a dog in the center. Um, the dog would be in a down and all the other dogs, and it was a big class of like 30 dogs. All the other dogs would circle around the table. They'd walk straight at the table. They'd run at the table. They'd circle. It was essentially flooding. Um, yeah. if that dog on the table tried to get up, it was given a harsh correction and pinned back down to the table, um, and then held there until it decided to stay there of its own accord. Um, but I feel that people almost it was enough for someone who felt that their dog could, they had to walk at midnight and could yeah. never ever have a normal dog for them. It didn't matter so much the method that they were using. What mattered in that moment was the fact that, wow, my dog was circled by 30 dogs and it was not happy, but it didn't eat anybody. Um, yeah. and, so I, I, and, and that's certainly not how I will say that's on the extreme end of how I've seen reactivity dealt with. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 it's always good. I feel like, um, to be careful of, I don't want one person representing a whole community. Um, but I will say that I feel like, um, punishment based training tends to push things a little bit faster. Um, and so I think that that's the kind of the allure of it. Um, and then with positive re with a more positive reinforcement based training where you're constantly working the dog under threshold, um, you don't really see the results of your hard work and it's a lot of hard work and dedication, but yeah. you don't see that until a few weeks down the road and then you're proofing it. And then, you know, it kind of happens. It happens all at once. It's not like this gradual progression where I suppose if someone was really good about tracking and logging yeah. and keeping a written diary, they would see it. But for, I, I am not good at that. And for many of my clients, they don't have time to keep those super detailed logs um, yeah. and so I think that for a lot of them, it tends to be, like I said, they're like, yeah, I think there's some improvement, but it's still the same, some improvement, still the same. And it's not until later down the line there, I don't know what happened, but the training must've worked because my dog just yeah. did this today. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, totally. I um, I know I've been pushing more and more record keeping with my clients. And one of the things I'll have them do, especially with reactivity, is I want them to text me after every walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and just and then they can just text me with like a little diary report. And I find it's weird because I for the longest time was just telling people to keep journal. Um, mm. And people are better about it when they text me than they are when they keep it in a journal. Um, <laughs> so I guess that, you know, it works. Um, but I think that's a really good point. And it's so easy to feel frustrated when you're doing this incremental sub-threshold approach. And it's really hard on the people. I feel like often positive reinforcement trainers are not good enough about having empathy for how hard it can be for the owners. Yeah. Um, I work a lot with separation anxiety and a lot with aggression. And both of those are just so hard to deal with. And mm-hmm. we're not getting results. We're not getting results. We're keeping the dog under threshold. We're so focused on the dog's happiness. And the owners are just, so stressed out. Right. Um, and I think we're often not empathetic enough about that. Um, not always. I know, I mean, many, many trainers on all ends of the spectrum are extremely empathetic with their owners. Um, but I do feel like that's something that I've been working on a lot with my clients is just, you know, being like, I know this is really awful. And you know what? If something screws up, it's not you're not a bad owner here's how to get out of that situation when you know like especially when I was in Denver working aggression and reactivity it was like most of my clients lived in apartment buildings and they had to either navigate stairwells or elevators in dog-friendly buildings with a dog aggressive dog right and it was like you know what one of the first things we have to do is talk about how to get yourself out of some of these situations um or what to do if you know, you open, uh, you know, it'd be like you'd open the door and your dog would go nose to nose with another dog before right. you even started your walk and then your dog's over threshold. And, um, you know, I think sometimes, we, I, I know I've been guilty of this, where I'm so focused on the dog's welfare that I kind of forget to remind the owners that it's okay for them to focus on themselves and it's okay right. for them to say that they're stressed out and it's okay for them to just get through a walk occasionally. Um, right. And that's kind of one of the comforts of a lot of these other tools and these other training techniques is, you know, it, it, it in some ways, and I don't quite know why it feels so much easier for a lot of people to just put on a prong collar for their dog and walk their dog than it is to put on their treat pouch, but it does feel easier for a lot of mm-hmm. people. Um, and I think being empathetic about that is important. Yeah. Is there no, anything I- else you want to throw in before we wrap up? Um, I don't think so. I think we covered a, we could probably go on and on and on and on, (laughs) but I think we covered a fair amount. Cool. All right. Well, so thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and I'm Kayla Pratt. I'm the owner of Journey Dog Training. You can find me online at journeydogtraining.com and you guys can find Janae at boisedogsports.com either on Facebook or, um, you know, the World Wide Web. Do you have anything else? Do you have any online courses or anything you want to you want to tell people to buy from you? Any Anything? <laughs> I do not. Um, not currently anyway, but thank you very okay. much for having me. Yeah, it was really great to have you. Um, for our listeners, remember to, um, you know, like, comment, subscribe, share, all that good stuff, whichever one you want to do, um, either verbally or electronically. Just keep in mind that if you do, um, you know, comment and rate and whatever on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcast, that really helps other people find us. Our theme music is called Funny Song and it's provided royalty free from bensounds.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beheard.org.uk. And our logo is from Walker Hooper. You can find his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. And we're K9 Conversations. Bye.